Welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And we're in the second Sunday of Easter. And the story of the resurrection this week and this Sunday comes from the Gospel of John chapter 20. And remember, this is Divine Mercy Sunday. And it's the reason that this particular story about the resurrection is chosen. And you remember this? On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. And then if you recall, the, the gospel reading goes on to talk about doubting Thomas. And Thomas isn't there when this happens. He wants to be able to put his fingers into the side, um, it, and into the nail marks, or he just won't believe. And then I'm going to talk with Father Serge Probst, our Dominican guest at St. Mark's Parish, about the meaning of doubt and mercy and justice. But I want to take a moment and I want to talk about what this all means in the big picture of what it means to be a human being. And so in the second reading, which is from Book of Revelations, uh, it's Jesus also risen from the dead. But John is having, the author of the book of Revelation, is having a very different kind of experience of the risen Jesus. Not in the upper room in Jerusalem where they're hiding for fear of the Jews, but it's John, a prisoner on the island of Patmos, and he is visited by the risen Jesus in a vision. And here's what it says. I, John, your brother, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus, found myself on the island called Patmos, because I proclaimed God's word and gave testimony to Jesus. I was caught up in spirit on the Lord's day, so this is a Sunday, the Lord's day, and heard behind me a voice as loud as a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see. And I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, wearing an ankle-length rope with a gold sash around his chest. And he said, do not be afraid. Do you see the connection between this story of John's vision on the island of Patmos and Jesus appearing in the upper room? This consistency of do not be afraid, um, peace be with you, shalom, this is the Jesus written from the dead, who now says to John, once I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death in the netherworld. Write down, therefore, what you have seen and what is happening and what will happen afterwards. And so the book of Revelation is really a prophecy about the future, the future of the church and the future of the redemption, the salvation of the human person. And we'll be in the book of Revelation throughout the season of Easter up until the time of Pentecost. But as we talk about the book of Revelation, let's keep in mind the context of this revelation. 
So we go back to the first part of the book, of the reading from the book of Revelation. I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. Do you remember in the temple of Jerusalem when it was sacked by the Babylonians, there was a menorah in it that was carried off by the Babylonians. A menorah is a candle stand that has seven sticks. It's only permitted in the temple. A hanukkah, and that is, uh, it looks like a menorah, and you see that it's used in Jewish devotion at the feast of uh, Hanukkah, but it has eight places for a lamp, eight places for candles, because out of the book of Revelation, the oil, they hadn't, they hadn't consecrated enough for the menorah to be lit for, uh, for what was coming up to seven days. The oil they had lasted eight days, and that's why the Hanukkah is uh, lit at Hanukkah. But the menorah is only permitted in the temple. Hanukkah in the home, the menorah in the temple. And there should be seven gold lampstands. So where is this happening? It's happening in the temple. And what, is she, what does the visionary see? One like the Son of Man. Right out of the book of Daniel, uh, where the Son of Man comes as the judge, or out of any of the Gospels, where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And how is the Son of Man dressed? He's dressed wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash around his chest. He's dressed like a priest. And so here's Jesus, and it's also the book of Hebrews. Here's Jesus, the divine priest, um, present in the divine temple. And he's going to talk about holding the keys to life and death, to heaven and to Hades. And so... Wow, if there's something to pay attention to in life, it's this. Yet many people are indifferent about the gospel. Many people seem indifferent about death until it catches them. And so let's take some time and turn to the story of the resurrection, what the resurrection is, what it's not, and what its length is to mercy, doubt, and faith. Stay tuned for our special guest, Father Serge Probst as we probe the connection between mercy and divine justice. Hello, and my guest today is Father Serge Probst. Father Serge, I know everybody already knows you from previous podcasts, so we'll skip the introduction, but there is one complaint that's made about the Gospel of John, especially at the beginning of the gospel today when it says, on the evening of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Is this gospel anti-Semitic? Not at all. We have to remember that at the time of Jesus, Jews referred not to the Jewish people, but to the people of Jerusalem. The people from Galilee weren't called Jews, they were called Galileans, though both were Israelites in the full sense of the word. So what John is trying to say in uh, colloquial language is that the people of Jerusalem rejected Jesus and they posed a serious threat to the disciples who were not from Jerusalem but from Galilee. And so I think in the Greek the word that's used is Judaioi, which sometimes is translated in the in the into English as Judean. And so Jews is not really a term used in the gospel, Judean is. And you picked up on something important that runs through all the gospels. 
And it's the relationship between the big city people in Judea and then the country hicks from Galilee. What kind of role does that play in the antagonism that's involved in this story? Well, some of it you have to understand is about Jerusalem. Remember, it is the capital of Judea. And the northern kingdom is Samaria. So the, in a sense, the people living in Jerusalem are claiming a higher status or a more important status, especially in, as it were, discerning what the law of the Lord is and applying it to the people. So you really have all the politicians, the intellectuals, and so forth, supposedly living in Jerusalem. Although we know more respected rabbis of the Talmud are to be found in Galilee than in Jerusalem itself. So this is a very complex question and a very complex problem. What we can definitively say is it had nothing to do with the gospel being anti-Jewish. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. They're all Jews. Yeah, Mary was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. John himself is a Jew. So he's not being anti-himself. They're all basically Judeans because the northern ten tribes was were destroyed Samaria. by the Assyrians. That's right. Nine centuries before. And this disconnection between Jerusalem and the north really goes back a long ways into the history of Israel and is recounted especially in First and Second Kings. But there's this other thread that really runs through the gospel generally. You know, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, it's said that the disciples worshipped him as God, because God is worshipped, and they doubted. And that same dynamic between being awestruck by what's happened and also doubt is at play in this gospel. What role, why is it, what role does it play, this doubt that's recounted in the gospels? Why do all the evangelists really talk about it? Well, first let's look at the gospels themselves. We're looking for a sign of their authenticity, their literal truthfulness. If you were writing a gospel to convert other people to your way of thinking and understanding, you would never deliberately introduce into it something that cast a, a shadow upon what you were trying to say. That they actually said some doubted is telling me they're being literally true. They aren't hiding anything from us. Two, they did doubt because what happened was beyond our experience. I love Thomas, he's an honest man. When he encounters the disciples and they tell him that they've seen the risen Lord, he thinks they're hysteria. Number one, nothing they say fits into what he understands about human beings, human nature, life and death. First, they don't recognize who it is, so why is it not an imposter? Two, he walks through solid walls and doors. This is hysteria, this is like a ghost or a spirit. Um, he is doubting and he demands concrete evidence. Jesus is going to give him that concrete evidence. But it's also for us a sign that we need to question our faith. Faith doesn't mean that I simply accept everything without uh, the use of my reason. Faith means that I trust enough in God's love for me that I'm willing to question the gospel. But in questioning the gospel, if I do it correctly, I'd really be honest and open to question it and looking for sources and so forth. I'm more convinced of the truth of the gospel after my questioning than I was before. So questioning is a way to deepen your faith. 
read about the gospel, study the, the, the language the gospel was written in. Question all you want, be my guest. The gospel is true and it simply will, as it were, pull you into itself and confirm your faith. You know, in, in the gospel, the Sadducees, that's the chief priests, the party of the temple, they only accepted as inspired the first five books of scripture, the Torah. And it didn't, according to them, explicitly say that there would be a resurrection of the body. Jesus corrects them, of course, when he talks about uh, the burning bush, which is in Exodus, that says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus makes the point that he's the God of the living, not the dead. But the idea of resurrection appears in much later Jewish um, writings, uh, within a couple hundred years of Jesus' birth. But it was always about the resurrection at the end of time. You know, just talking about how human beings are. If, so if you're a Pharisee, you believe in the resurrection because they did believe in the resurrection. Is there a difference in your mind between I'll rise at the end of time when the sun burns out and, oh, Jesus rose and is standing in front of me? Of course, there's an absolute difference. Our hope in the resurrection at the end of time is a hope for eternal life, somehow connected with this particular body, but not necessarily. Jesus' resurrection means that something unimaginable has happened right in our midst, and it calls us to a different understanding of ourselves, our relationship with God, and our relationship with Jesus, because he promises us that this resurrection actually begins before our death and our life of grace. It comes to its fulfillment at the end of time, but we don't wait for it till the end of time in a sense. We're already beginning to live the resurrected life at the moment of our baptism. So nope. it's the life of grace. In this culture where, this, where Jesus rises, the Jewish culture surrounded by this larger Greco-Roman uh, Mediterranean culture, there was a belief in ghosts in the larger culture. And the Greeks actually, Plato specifically, talked about transmigration of souls. Right. You know, one of the things about the gospel is, you know, you see it in Luke, is no one recognizes Jesus until he wants to be recognized. Yep. Like in the story of Emmaus, he's recognized in the breaking of the bread. So how is it that we as Christians are supposed to connect these stories about the resurrection of Jesus with the Jesus that the disciples knew in historical times. Well, first of all, let's be honest. If Jesus had risen and looked exactly as he was before, other words, his, his physical human body comes back to life, Thomas would never have doubted. He wouldn't have been able to walk through solid doors. He wouldn't have been able to do anything that really sets this resurrection story apart from all the others. What happens is this resurrection is radically different. It's not simply the coming back to life. It's the revealing of glory. Remember, Jesus is transfigured as a sign to the apostles to prepare them for his crucifixion and his resurrection. Even then, his body was different. So we have Jesus now rising from the dead and it in a sense calls into question all of the Jewish belief in resurrection, all of the Jewish belief in who the Messiah was. Remember, Thomas doesn't only, as it were, drop down to his knees saying, oh yes, you are, you are the Jesus now risen in a glorious body. He goes far beyond that. 
this reality that is before me now, whom I have proven to be actually Jesus because of the marks in the hands and the feet and the side, he is also God, and that's what shakes the whole world, everything. That's a notion that no one else has come up with, and it's a notion we have a hard time dealing with today, but Jesus is God and man. And as God and man, when we live his life, our physical bodies will also be glorified. So our resurrection isn't simply coming back to life the way we are now. It's coming back to a life that's almost unimaginable in a physical body that doesn't have the same limits that we experience here. We'll be able to walk through solid doors. So let me ask <clears throat> this question. So I, I, my mom and dad died. Everybody who's listening to this podcast has lost someone they loved to death. Are they gonna look just completely different in the resurrection? No, now understand, at the resurrection, you're going to see things differently. Here we can only see the external appearances. You will recognize your mom and your dad in a way you never recognized them before. For you will know them not only by their physical appearance, which will be different. They will be young. They'll no longer be old and feeble and crippled and all, as it were, twisted up. Kids that died at the age of five won't be five years old for eternity. This is idiocy. They'll be in their maturity. That maturity we have a hard time imagining, but the best way to do it is it was eternal youth, but eternal youth without any limitations. We will recognize them, we will know them, and we will know them more profoundly than we ever knew them here on earth. Besides, we also won't look the same, thanks be to God. Okay, maybe a real chance for Arnold to have six-pack abs. Amen. But uh, one of the things I wanted to point out, apropos of what you were saying, is in the final book of the City of God, one of St. Augustine's great works uh, from the fifth century. He has this extended discussion about whether children who had died in abortion would be risen from the dead. And he said he wouldn't be surprised if it happened, but he didn't know that he could affirm that it would. But I, what I thought was interesting was how open he was to the possibility that nothing that God has brought life to will be lost. That's right. Remember, he's a good theologian. He can't point to anything in scripture or specifically in the tradition to support. But there's nothing in the scripture or the tradition which, in a certain sense, invalidates that position. Excludes it, Excludes not excluded. It. So I, I agree with Augustine. I think, matter of fact, that all that God has created, he wills the salvation of all human beings, and I include unborn children among human beings, so that would include them, which means, yes, since they committed no deliberate sin, then the faith of the church will overwhelm them and bring them into that same glory uh, that we enjoy now. So if a woman has aborted a child and she's grieving over that child now, she will be reunited with the child, but without shame, without pain, and with intense, as it were, delight and glory, and be able to share her love with that child forever and ever. This is the divine mercy. You know, this, I think, the, the whole story of the resurrection is a great hope to people who can't undo the past, feel burdened by it. Right but have hopes that somehow God can make it right. And in that connection is really the core of this story. And at the core of the story of, well, John 20 and Jesus' appearance in the upper room, doubting Thomas, but the entirety of the gospel is the Christian understanding of the relationship between divine justice and divine mercy 
and what it is that we can hope for from reconciliation with God. What, what is that relationship between divine justice and divine mercy? Okay, first of all, mercy does not, as it were, dispense with justice. Anytime we think we're being merciful and just ignore justice, we're fooling ourselves. Nothing good will come from it. God's divine justice has to be met, but divine mercy brings divine justice to perfection. So when, this is why we can say that it was necessary that Jesus were crucified. He had to become one like us or there is no compassion, the feeling with. He had to go through everything we went through in life. He did it without sin. We always did it by making mistakes and sinning. But since he is one of us, he can take to himself what belongs to all of us and that's our guilt. He puts that guilt to death upon the cross. He pays the price. But our sins are finite and so our ability in a certain sense to make reparation for our sins is also finite so none of us could actually redeem ourselves we still fall short he was also god which gave to his reparation upon that cross infinite value so as soon as i unite in repentance my life of sin to jesus he takes it to himself but now with an infinite power he makes it all good that's why I can say after absolution, I'm squeaky clean. More than that, he's going to make all of this. We always understand forgiveness of sin is somehow God just obliterating them or washing over them or something else like that. He doesn't. He has the power to bring good out of evil. That was the whole notion of the cross and the resurrection. That means if I repent of my sins, he takes my sin and makes it an occasion for a greater good. Now how this is done really blows our minds, but we find it happening every day in our life. We make a mistake and somehow out of it a good comes. That's God's acting, something we can't do. And so when I get to heaven, I don't have to be ashamed of my sins. Why? Because I see what God has done to bring out of them something even better. This is the mystery of divine mercy. And it's a good, it's a good place to kind of close with the center of our Christian faith, which is the crucifixion, where you look on the battered remnants of Christ's corpse hanging dead on the cross, but you also see the beauty of God's love, that somehow just what we see does not completely account for all that there is. And so to see the cross as the sign of our uh, reconciliation to God our sins battered, us broken. And still, it's the beautiful love of God that transcends. Thank you for your time, Father Serge. Thank you. The book of Revelation, Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the high priest in the new temple appearing to John of Patmos. You know, Salvador Dali, who was a surrealistic artist, I think most people remember Salvador Dali. One of the most famous paintings he has from his later period of a, of a really kind of, I'll just say it, weird life. <laughs> but I believe he died with being anointed as a Catholic. He, he really did love religious texts. And one of his paintings is called The Crucifixion, the Corpus Hypercubus. It's a 1954 oil on canvas painting, non-traditional, surrealist, and it depicts Christ kind of hanging out in space 
on a polyhedron net or what's called a tesseract or a hypercube. And the idea of the hypercube is that it takes the cross and the center part where the horizontal and the lateral meet, pops it out into basically four cubes. Um, and that the idea apparently of transforming the cross uh, from the usual three-dimensional uh, figure that we've seen into a hypercube is it tries to capture in visual terms the cosmic reality, the transcendent reality of the crucifixion. You know, we, we try to do it in the church when we'll have a cr cross, but we'll put the resurrected Jesus. Um, and that is trying to put those two things together because the Paschal Triduum, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, going into Easter Sunday in the beginning of the Easter, uh, of the Easter season, it, it, what it tells us is that death and resurrection are connected realities that can't be pulled apart. It's not this happens and that happens. It's one reality. But the problem that the modern believer has is the same problem that they had in that upper room about doubt and fear. It's because in Dolly's painting of Jesus on this hypercube, that's uh, shaped uh, recognizably like a cross with Mary Magdalene, who by the way, the subject matter was apparently his wife. Mary Magdalene uh, standing sorrowfully before Jesus on this cross floating over an abyss is that each of us dangles over the abyss. Death, we have our faith and uh, we also can have faith but still have doubts and fears. That's part of the experience of a Christian. For those people who say, oh, if you're a Christian, what are you afraid of? Well, you have all the same human fears that everybody else does. You know who is just so great at talking about this is Pope Benedict in his book, which is called the introduction, An Introduction to Christianity. And it's probably one of the best books on the Christian faith written um, in the 20th century probably uh, is still one of the best books on the Christian faith written because he is so smart. He's such a good writer. Everybody can understand him. He's so deeply cultured and intelligent. Um, but he reminds us of this story that Soren Kierkegaard, a Lutheran theologian of the 19th century, uh, talks about where uh, he's in the clowns in a circus. This is how the introduction of Christianity starts out. And the circus notices that there's a big fire. And if the people from the town don't come and help put the fire out, it's going to destroy both the circus and the town. So they send the clown into town to gather people and tell them that there's a big fire and everybody's going to be destroyed. But everybody knows that it's a clown, so none of them takes them seriously. They laugh at him. They ignore him. And the fire engulfs both the circus and the town. Well, for... Kierkegaard, um, it's this allegory of the church preaching the gospel to the world. 2,000 uh, years later, 20 centuries, everybody knows what Catholicism is, but they've been like inoculated against it. And so that the priest or you trying to explain your Catholic faith to the unbelievers, this story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, 
you're treated like Soren Kierkegaard's uh, clown. But here's how uh, Pope Benedict wrote about it in Introduction to Christianity. First of all, the believer is always threatened with an uncertainty that in moments of temptation can suddenly and unexpectedly cast a piercing light on the fragility of the whole that usually seems so self-evident to him or her. A few examples will help make this clear. That lovable St. Therese of Lisieux, and friends, she is lovable, who looks so naive and unproblematical, grew up in an atmosphere of complete religious security. Her whole existence from the beginning to the end and down to the smallest detail was so completely molded by the faith of the church that the invisible world became not just a part of her everyday life, but that life itself. It seemed to be an almost tangible reality that could not be removed by any amount of thinking. To her, religion really was a self-evident presupposition of her daily existence. She dealt with it as we deal with the concrete details of our lives. Yet this very saint, a person apparently cocooned in complete security, left behind her from the last weeks of her passion and death, shattering admissions that her horrified sisters toned down in her literary remains that have only come now to light in new verbatim editions. She says, for example, I am assailed by the worst temptations of atheism. Her mind is beset by every possible argument against the faith. The sense of believing seems to have vanished. She feels that she is now in sinner's shoes. In other words, in what is apparently a flawlessly interlocking world, someone has suddenly catches a glimpse of the abyss that's lurking, even for her, under the firm structure of the supportive conventions. In a situation like this, what is in question is not the sort of thing that one perhaps quarrels about otherwise. The dogma of the assumption, the proper use of confession, for instance, all this becomes absolutely secondary. What is at stake is the whole structure. It's a question of all or nothing. That is the only remaining alternative. Nowhere does there seem to be anything to cling to in this sudden fall. Wherever one looks, only the bottomless abyss of nothingness can be seen. The Pope says that the cross is like a plank of wood bobbing on an eternal ocean and that we're attached to that plank of wood. But, but the believer knows that it's enough to float on. And so Easter season, you cannot separate suffering and the crucifixion from the resurrection of Jesus. It's why he still bears his wounds. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. Thank you for listening. <laughs>